0: Amen. Thank you, Ron. Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Um, I would echo all that Ron just said. Please do pray for Jonathan. I had a minor surgery on Friday, um, and um, I got a call at 2 o'clock in the morning Friday night um, that, that he was needing to go back into the hospital uh, to get some more medical attention, and they're still kind of r- trying to run tests and figure out what's causing his his discomfort and and some of the reaction to the medication that he's having. So it's a little bit scary time for he and his wife. Um, And you can see it's neat. I mean, you can see how much we miss him because he's usually the guy that has the PowerPoint stuff and everything going. So it's it's good for him to be missed when he's here. We're in the middle of a series, actually the second week of a series, where we're going to be taking a look at uh, the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, I want to warn you. Um, you're going to get a good dose of what I'm talking about this morning when I say that Deuteronomy is a book that should shake your life to the very core uh, because it, it, it pulls no punches. Uh, method, here, the methodology of how we're going to do that so that you can just kind of understand. Last week, Jonathan preached and gave us an introduction uh, to the book from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Beginning this week, we're going to be taking a look at the Ten Commandments because a lot of the scholars believe that the Ten Commandments that are presented in Deuteronomy chapter 5 that the rest of the book of Deuteronomy, from chapters twelve to roughly chapter twenty-six, uh, were really structured as a as an ex- exposition of the commands as they're given um, when when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai. So we're going to take a command, <clears throat> excuse me, and then we're going to go to a larger portion of Scripture to help exposit exactly what that command is getting at. As you saw in uh, the larger catechism. The way that the church has historically understood um, these commands, the breadth in which the church has historically understood their application is staggering. And I told you I edited; that was an edited version of of the the obedience required in the sins um, that were forbidden in the commands. And so we've got to we've got to kind of get at all of that. Now this can be dangerous because you think, great, the Ten Commandments. You know, I had a friend of mine when I was in the Baptist Church who said, you know, uh, I'm a Baptist because I don't feel like you've done church unless you leave feeling beaten to a bloody pulp, you know. And so you've got to be really careful because um, we we do want, we believe in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet uh, we find ourselves back here in the Old Testament talking about the Ten Commandments. And so we want to just give you categories by which you can understand how these things all relate together. And, and remember that the commands that we are going to be looking at together uh, they are they are showing us the design of God. They're not arbitrary rules. They are the expression of human community as God has intended it to be from the very beginning. He made us. He knows how we work. I've been having trouble with my car. I have a mechanic in town I trust, and it's gotten to the place where I, I'm going to have to take it to the dealer, and I hate doing that. But they made it. If they don't know how it works, <clears throat> we're all in trouble. You know, he made us, he knows how we work, and, and and he knows what we need to thrive and to be whole. And these ten commandments and all of the law, really, are his roadmap to becoming the kind of community that our hearts at the deepest levels long for. So as they are about to enter the promised land, God is giving Israel the law. A second time, Deuteronomy means second law, so that when they were in the land and were surrounded by all the different cultures that were going to be there, that they might be a light. In other words, this, what we're going to talk about in these, in these commandments, the kind of community that they express, this is how the world is supposed to be. This is what life in submission to God's reign and his rule look like. This is what heaven's going to be like. And so this morning, we're going to look at the first commandment. Uh, which is in in really the second commandment kind of together, which is in many respects the most foundational and the most important because you can't even get close to obeying commandments 2 through 10 without getting number one right. So we've got to spend time on this first commandment because our our, our effectiveness in getting at 2 through 10 will be directly related to how well we do number one. So let's read uh, this passage of Scripture together. If you go to your worship folder, I will warn you, in your worship folder, we're reading one through ten on the screen. It'll be one through seven. I didn't get the other three verses on there. That's my fault. Uh, so just be aware there's gonna be a little bit of a little bit of a um discrepancy there. and then from Deuteronomy thirteen now buckle your seatbelt because Deuteronomy thirteen should just floor you and imagine what it's like wrestling with this for fifteen or twenty hours this week. okay Deuteronomy five verse one. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today. You shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time, to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire and did not want to go into the mountain, up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Here we go. You shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number two. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the sea. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God... I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Deuteronomy 13. You ready? If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commands you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now, if your brother or the son of your mother or your son or your daughter or the wife you embrace or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your nor your fathers have known some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other. You shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones, because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any wickedness as this among you. This is God's word. It's very quiet. Um as somebody somebody very sweetly said to me today, How in the world do you make sense of that on this side of the cross? Well, guess what? That's my job this morning. Pray for me. I want us to look at three things. <clears throat> I want us to look at God's supremacy. I talk about God's supremacy as it is expressed in this first command. Second thing, I want us to talk about the rivals to God's supremacy or idols. Thirdly, how God puts down those rivals in the gospel, and then I hope we can make some application, especially as it relates to Deuteronomy chapter 13. Okay, so let's do that. Let's start by talking about God's supremacy. Uh, wives, I have, I have a question to ask if you're a wife or if you hope to be a wife one day. Uh, wives, what would it feel like uh, to be one among the many of your husband's loves? Anybody ready to sign up for that? Man, I'm not asking you. I mean, do you see how even in marriage, your expectation is uh, that to be your husband's wife would mean that he would love you exclusively and be exclusively loyal to you and to you alone. And that's the only appropriate expression of your worth as his wife. And if that is true of you, in your marriage to your husband, how much more true is it for the God of all creation? To say and to demand of us, I don't want to be one among many. I'm not satisfied with being an afterthought or a disruption to your otherwise busy schedule. I want to be at the very center of your life. And so let me go after what the Lord is getting at in this first command. You shall have no other gods before me by saying by, by going after it both positively and negatively, if you'd allow me positively, look at verse um, verse thirteen verses three through four, and this just echoes, and i don 't have to spend a lot of time here because Jonathan did a brilliant job on it last week, and you can go to the website and listen to the sermon if you weren 't here, but we are to love the Lord with all of our heart and with all of our soul. Look there, this is a summary statement here in verses three and four: We are to walk after him, to fear him, to keep his commandments, to obey his voice, to serve him. And hold fast to him, which is the language of of marital intimacy. So let me reaffirm what we talked about last week, about the totality of God's claim on us. Let me just say gently to you, you don't own him. He owns you. You don't define him. He defines you. And he has absolute authority over every nook and cranny of our lives. And he demands our loyalty, our allegiance, our attention, our affection, and our delight. But let me say it negatively as well. Let me spend a little more time here. He says to us that we are to have no other gods before him. Now, it would be a mistake to believe that this first command only applies to polytheistic cultures of the world or to the other world religions. So don't, you know, it, it, of course it applies there. Don't Muhammad, you know, the, the, the gods of the Hindus or, you know, the god the gods of all of the tribal religions in the world, don't, don't put any of those gods of those religions before me, but it's a mistake to think that that is all that this command is talking about. And the Hebrew would best be translated here, have no other gods as rivals to me. And so the picture, uh, and I was thinking college football, Go Seminoles! Can I get a whoop, whoop? There you go. There, thank you. Biggest win in a long time for us. Good day today. Thinking about I got college football on my heart, which I'm going to have to repent of in a little while when we get down a little further in here. But if you have you ever seen, um, have you ever seen? You know, you go to a, a stadium or, you, or the intro before the game, and they've got the helmets of the two opposing teams, and they're kind of looking at one another, or they even have these graphics where they kind of butt up against one another. Or if you've ever, if you ever, you know, if you saw the weigh-in the other night for the big fight coming up. Uh, or you've ever seen guys that are about to get into the ring or, you know, the old Rocky Balboa movies, you know, where the guys come up to the center ring and they just get in one another's face and kind of look at one another and taunt one another. Do You know, what I'm talking about. Me? That's that's the image. That's the image that Moses is getting at the wheat when he says you're to have no other gods before me. The Lord is saying, don't put don't set up other gods as rivals to me that that would come and taunt me face to face who would would pretend to to be in, in competition with me. And so the idea is not philosophical orthodoxy, but practical loyalty. The Lord is saying, he's saying, don't give your heart to any other God besides me. Don't place your trust in anything or anyone other than me. Don't put your hopes for happiness and success in any other thing. Don't give your loyalty away. Don't give your heart to other things so that they're in competition with your love and your obedience to me. So, for example. Coming to the New Testament in Matthew, chapter six. Jesus says, and it's a passage you're probably familiar with, he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. What Jesus is saying, he's picking up kind of the the idea here in this first command. He's saying that God and money are rivals. They're in competition for supremacy in our hearts. And Jesus is saying you have to choose. If you make money, your God. Then you will love it and you will be devoted to it, and it will cause you to hate God. In other words, your life without God will be dictated, your life with God will be dictated to you by your superior allegiance to money. And the other way around, if you make God your master, then you will love and be devoted to Him, and your relationship with money will be influenced by your superior affection for God. But you have to choose, they're rivals, and you have to make a choice about which. God, you're going to serve the Lord or mammon. And what the Lord is asking of us in this passage is he's saying, don't set up rivals like that. Give all of your heart and your soul and your strength to me to cling to me and to walk with me and to and to hold fast to me. And, and I think what drives this home more than anything else that I could that I could ever come up with is is just the starkness of that passage in deuteronomy 13 and in Deuteronomy 13 the Lord says if you want to know how serious I am about the the, the exclusive loyalty and allegiance I'm calling you to then let's talk about the way that you you know engage with some of your relationships and, and here's how you can gauge here's how you can gauge how far you've come towards the first commandment, that that your allegiance and love to the Lord would be so total that all the other loves in your life could be called hatred in comparison to it. And that's just what Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, when he says, unless you hate your mom and your dad and your brother and your sister and your children and come after me, you can't be my disciple. Does he want you to hate your kids? No, he's saying you have got to be so taken up in love an affection for me that any other love in comparison to the love for which you love me you could call it hate. And I just want to say if you if if that feels harsh uh you know if if you're outraged by it if one of the things you you got to re- you know you've got to wrestle with here's what you've got to, you've got to wrestle with this you've got to wrestle with whether your objections to what I'm saying to what Deuteronomy 13 seems to suggest you've got to wrestle with with whether your objections expose a shift in a worldview away from a biblical worldview. And C.S. Lewis warns that it might not be our sensibilities towards grace that make this hard for us to to understand or comprehend or even make sense of. It might be our appalling moral apathy, that we could respond to idolatrous, blasphemous evil, not with a curse, but with a shrug. And Christopher Wright, who's a commentator on this on this book of Deuteronomy and has written some other things which are very, very good, I just want to quote him. He says, If we can no longer identify with the scale of priorities and values that undergird Deuteronomy 13, it is manifestly not because we have acquired a greater appreciation of the value of human life, but because we have lost any sense of the awful majesty of God's reality. He says the Western church more than it cares to admit, has imbibed that dichotomized, privatized cultural worldview in which God is no longer the ultimate governing reality and the Lord of all human life and community, private and public, domestic and political, local and global, and having, for all practical purposes, accepted the box into which the surrounding cultures confine God, it is not surprising that we have difficulty with the concept of idolatry. So we're being called to something far more than most of us have even conceived here, that the the Lord would be the supreme loyalty and affection and desire of our hearts. But you see what he's exposing? What's happening is in this in this verse, uh, he's exposing what's wrong with our hearts. And so we've got to talk about these rivals. Then if that if that's what God God wants to be supreme, he is supreme and he wants it to be expressed in our lives. We've to talk about these rivals that are the idols of the heart. And that's, what, that's what's being exposed here, that we are constantly giving our love and our affection and our worship and our loyalty to other things, to money and possessions and status, relationships, so that we're living for those things, and our love for them is controlling our lives and not our love for God. So David Paulson, uh, in trying to define what the bible means by idolatry he says the most basic questions which god poses to every human heart are these has something or someone besides jesus christ taken title to your heart's functional trust preoccupation loyalty service fear or delight you see in the bible's conceptualization the motivation question is the lordship question who or what rules my behavior the lord or something else so I have to ask you this morning, as you think about your life and as I think about mine, what rules your behavior? What is providing the motivation or the inspiration for the decisions that you're making and the direction that your life is taking? When you come to the answer to that question, that is your God. You see, God is ultimate and all other things in our lives are good, but they're not ultimate. Let me say that again because that's, a, that's an god is ultimate and all the other things in our lives most you know there a lot of them are good but they're not ultimate but the foundational dysfunction of our hearts is that we're constantly taking good things and elevating them and making them ultimate things and idols that's what an idol is an idol is a good thing that is being elevated to becoming an ultimate thing and we look to these things for meaning for covering from our sense of insignificance or for giving us a righteousness or a worth and so the, the famous Preacher in London, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says an idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. Listen to the way he says this. He says it's anything that is central in my life. An idol is anything that holds such a controlling position in my life that it moves and rouses and attracts much of my time and attention, energy and money. So that's what idols are. But if you want to know what what your if you want to help diagnose or discover your idols, then just take those four things that he just said: time. Just write them down on a piece of paper. Time, attention, energy, money. And go home, and just take those four categories: time, attention, energy, money, and just begin to ask: what gets the most time? What gets the most attention? What, what do I find it easy to be energized about? What do I willingly spend my money on? You know, now you're starting to get to the heart of things. Or, or some of these questions. You ready? What's your greatest nightmare? You know, what do you rely on or comfort yourself with when things go badly or get really hard? What do you think most easily about? What preoccupies you? This is one of my favorites, and I found it to be very helpful. Uh, What unanswered prayer would make you seriously think about turning away from the Lord? Okay. Just getting a little further into this, I'm just trying to help you. Take these three realities, and this will be this will be helpful, I think, in in help in helping us understand. I'm trying to I'm trying to convince you that idolatry is not something that is happening, you know, with naked people in in the middle of the African jungles. Okay, it's happening right here in this room. Take these three realities, anger, anxiety and despair. Okay, now they used to say I'm going from preaching to meddling now, right, or whatever that is. How do you say that? Anger, anger. Uh, Are you angry? Where do you find when do you find yourself getting angry? Um, angry anger is rooted in idolatry. We usually get angry when our idols are being blocked by something or someone. So when you're angry, here's what you have to begin to ask yourself. OK, I'm angry. Is there something too important to me? Is there something I'm telling myself I must have? Is that why I'm angry? Because I'm being blocked from having something I think is a necessity when it's not? anxiety, worry, okay? Anxiety in the same way is rooted in idolatry. We're usually anxious when our idols are being threatened. So when you feel yourself getting anxious, you got to start to ask, okay? Is there something too important to me? Is that why I'm afraid? Because there's something I've attached my heart to and it's being threatened. There's something that I think I have to have and I might lose it. And so my world's beginning to fall apart and I'm just full of anxiety Fear, okay. How about despair or depression? But despair, depression, again, are rooted in idolatry. We despair when we think we've failed our idols. So if you're if you're despairing, if you're discouraged beyond just normal kind of discouragement, I mean, if you're discouraged to the point to where I mean, you're you are you are falling apart, and there just despair has set in, uh, then, then you need to ask yourself: Is there something too important to me? Is that why I'm so depressed? Because I've failed at something which my heart thinks it needs. Do you see how this works? These idols that we're talking about that take up residence in our hearts, they control our behavior. They provide our motivation for all our decision-making. They're they're underneath the surface, powerfully shaping the way we live. So if you can't find the the energy for obedience, if you're trapped in sin, it's because... It's because you're worshiping and hoping in something and serving a rival God that has stolen your affection and loyalty away from the Lord. I want to say that again because this is, this is going to be a new thought. It is for me. I'm sure it will be for a lot of you. If, if you're finding it hard to find the energy for obedience or if you're trapped in a sin that you, you desperately want to be freed from, it, it does not do to, for me to stand up here and say, shame on you. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Good people. That What you have to do, you have have to get beneath the surface of that stuff and begin to say, is there something that I'm worshiping and hoping in and serving that has stolen my affection away from the Lord? So go down, just go down the list of the Ten Commandments. You probably know it pretty well. If you can't figure out how to keep the Sabbath or if you resist the authority in your life or if there's a hate in your heart or if you're full of covetousness and envy, the root of all of our failure to obey commandments two through ten is our failure to obey commandment one. So let me give you I got to hurry. Let me give you a test case. This is my favorite. Uh, this is this is this is the command of the Lord that I that I am the worst at and that I have found all of you are the worst at, too. You ready? And not because I know you, just because this is just the church. The church has not figured out how to do this. You Ready? Speak the truth in love. Okay. If your idol, and I, like mine, is performance and approval. So in other words, if the thing that you need more than anything else in the whole world is for people to like you and think you're wonderful, then when somebody needs you to speak truth into their life for their good, you won't have the courage to do it because what will happen? How are they going to respond? They're probably not going to like you. And you need them to like you more than you need to. You know, then, than, than, you know, your desire to have them like you is stronger than your desire to love them. But you see what's going on there? Their approval here, their approval in that moment means more to you than God's approval. And the verdict on your life from their lips carries more weight than God's verdict. You desire their approval more than obedience. So the approval is a rival God, okay? It is an idol that's ordering your life and causing you to sin. Okay, but this, the other side, these people aren't off the hook either. If your approval, like mine again, this is why I'm just terrible at this because I can't figure it out. If your approval is pleasure, if the thing you want more than, the whole, in the whole, more than anything else in the whole world is just to be free to do whatever you want to do, just, just leave me alone, then you will live so consumed with yourself and so committed to your own agenda that when people begin to make demands on you, you'll probably resent them. My guess is you'll have no problem speaking the truth. Have you met people like this? I.e. telling people off. But you won't do it in love. It'll be thoughtless or rash or harsh. You'll have not taken the time to get, it, to get into the other person's world and figure, I mean, so do you see how you just fail all over the place? And what's because we're failing at the first command. And so an idol is any good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. And that's the foundational dysfunction of the human heart. We're always taking creative things and elevating them to God's status. But the question is. Just hit the button, babe. But the question is, why do we do this? And I think we get close. So point number three. I think we get close. In answering that question, why are we constantly doing this? What is it in our hearts that that causes us to be weak to this? By just making this statement, that what the Scripture reveals to be true of humanity is, we do not want a God that we must serve. We want gods that will serve us. We want to be in control of our lives. We don't want to be dependent upon God for anything. I mean, this is the sin. This is the sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter three: the stubborn insistence on autonomy. We want to govern and control our own lives. And we really think we could do it better than he does most of the time. And if you follow the story of Israel, as God brings them out of Egypt, you'll see that this is exactly the thing that keeps coming up. They're constantly, constantly calling God's love and his leadership, his care for them into question. There's no food, you know, and so they accuse God and they complain. There's no water, and so they grumble. They're not happy with the way they're being treated. And even when they get into the promised land, they're constantly turning to Baal And worshiping him. And it's always a matter of pragmatism. The Lord cannot be manipulated or controlled, but the other gods could be. And so, the iron, But here's the irony in what we find ourselves doing. The irony is that we think we can find gods that will serve us, but in the end they prove powerless. They don't deliver on what they promise, and they in fact enslave us. And so here's what we're doing. We're turning our back on the Lord in fear of what he might ask of us, but what we're doing is turning our back on the only one who loves us and can really give us life and freedom. And that's why the Lord chooses to begin the giving of the law. If you look there in Deuteronomy chapter five, verse six, with the summary statement, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt. I heard your cries. I came and powerfully brought you out before he tells them what to do before he gives them law. He reminds them of grace. Grace always comes before law. The Lord says, I brought you out of Egypt. It's his way of reminding them of his love and how he proved that love in, in the Exodus event that he's the one that loves them. He's the one that cares for them. He's the one that longs to provide for them. He's saying, I, I love, He's basically he's saying, I dare you to find another God that will love you and protect you and provide for you like I have. Remember Egypt. You're my friends, and so I have to say to you, money can't save you. The praise of men can't satisfy your heart's need for approval because the crowd is fickle. And Augustine's famous line applies. He said, you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts will not find rest until they rest in you. And so how does God overcome our idols? And that's what we've got to do. And then maybe make an application. How does he overcome our idols? How does the gospel come and conquer our idolatries? And it's just that you have to remember Egypt. That's what the Lord's saying. You've got to remember Egypt. You've got to stare into the mystery of God's salvation and see how how he is being revealed to be the only God in heaven and on earth that can truly satisfy the deepest desires of your heart and how all the other gods that we give our hearts to are being exposed as being powerless to keep their promises. You've got to ask yourself, you've got to ask yourself, what is it I'm really looking for in this thing I've given my heart to? And then, How is that need or desire really met in Jesus and not in other things? So do you remember those, a couple of examples I've given you? If you, if you, you know, if it's just obvious to you as you sit and listen and think about these things that you, that there's a, there's a need in your heart for, for reputation or affirmation and acceptance from other people. If you're a teenager, I'm pretty sure, especially if you're a teenage girl around 13 to 15 years old, if that, if you know, okay, I need that. Then then what you've got to see is that your idol is a need for approval and affirmation, but Only the gospel can provide the approval and the affirmation that your heart desperately needs. Your friends, you know, teenagers, your friends that you're giving your heart to in hopes that they will love you. The moment you throw your hat in the air at graduation, they will forget you. He will never forget you. In the gospel, you gain the approval of the most important person in the entire universe, that Jesus, we we're told, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, that we might have the righteousness of God, the approval and the praise of God. And so all that I'm looking for in seeking the approval and the praise of men, I get in the gospel, and it frees my heart now to be obedient, and to not be enslaved by that. But if you're, maybe you can say, well, man, I know money is a big, big deal to me. And so if your idol is money, Probably the security that money brings, then the only then only in the gospel can you truly find uh, the security that your heart really looks for. The gospel reassures you that you have the smile of God, that his wrath came down on Jesus on the cross. And there's now no condemnation that God is for you, that he loves you and can, that can never be taken away from you. Your money can be taken away from you, but the love of God for you cannot be taken away from you because it's a, it's a covenant love. He loves you for Jesus' sake and not because of your performance and if you've got him who needs money Money can fix most problems but not all your problems and it creates a lot of problems but is there anything too difficult for the Lord And so this is what we this is the practice we've got to get good at is how do we heal our hearts with the gospel and, and what we find is, and just by way of application as we draw to a close, is we, can you see, can anybody, can I get an amen? We need one another. You feel that? I mean, we're in over our heads, people. And we desperately need one another. And that is why, that is why I think we need to, we need to take a look. And just, I just have about three or four minutes left to look at Deuteronomy 15, 13 and just, and just give you some points of application that would fall under the obedience of faith. And they're just three things. There are three things. Um, and, and that I want that I want you to think about um, as you think about how to begin to apply these things uh, that we're learning in the scripture. And the first is just this. Number one, don't be ignorant of, of the cultural idols uh, that you face every day. Cultural idols. Every culture and every city has its own idolatries, and you need to know what those are. For example. In our culture, broadly defined, you know, there are idols of money and sex and power, pleasure and personal freedom are a big deal. In American culture, and you need to know I mean it's where you live that you're that you're a part of all that. But do you know the idols that are specific to Winter Haven or the city you live in? Have you ever thought about that? What are the idolatries and the way you know the things that people in our city are giving their lives to? Family and children? Recreation? Retirement? So don't be ignorant of the cultural idols. You have to do the work of really staring down your culture and really seeing, okay, man, these, these are the things in our culture that the, pe- that the people in our, my culture are giving their hearts and their lives to that are turning them away from the Lord. And number two, once you've, once you've realized and recognized the cultural idols that you're facing, understand this, and please hear me, that the culture, whether you understand it to be true or not, the culture is trying to convert you to its idolatries. It is actively seeking to convert you. To its idolatries. Very powerful in doing that. And so, thirdly, thirdly, what that means then is that we have to steward our relationships well, that we have a powerful place in one another's lives, and that means we have a great responsibility to, towards one another. That when you give your heart to somebody, you give that person power to shape your view of the world and your values and priorities. And we have the ability to use the influence we we have either positively or negatively. And so we need to be lovingly intolerant of one another's idols. You need to surround yourself with a community of people who are going to be constantly calling you to repentance. And Moses warns you. Moses warns you of two, two categories of people in Deuteronomy 13 that you have to be especially care, careful of. And the first is people who are in authority over you. A prophet or a dreamer of dreams. You need to know uh, that, that you are weak to people who are in authority over you, who bring their power and their authority to bear upon your life. It's hard to say no to a pastor or a spiritual leader who claims to have heard from God and who's working miracles and who has a wonderful plan for your life. And then the second second one, not only authority, but affection. You need to know that you're weak to the people you feel deep affection for. It's hard to say no to your little girl, isn't it, dads? Or your spouse. Or your mom or your dad, and so he says, "Be careful, be careful of those who are in authority and affection." And I know that means I've done, I did a terrible job of opening up Deuteronomy 13 for you and exactly what it means, except that 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 it is a call for seriousness and urgency of giving our whole heart and our whole life to worship and serve the Lord and not the idols of the culture that we're a part of, and to steward our relationships well towards the end of faithfulness and obedience and not idolatry. And so we need to pray that God would come. And do that. So would you pray with me as we as we come to a close here? Jesus. um, We can I think we can all feel in our own hearts all of the ways that the command falls on deaf ears to love you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and how how often we give our hearts to other things, that we've filled our lives with idols of our own making in hopes that they will serve us rather than than submitting ourselves and and understanding that we are called to serve you. So come and help us as a people um, to overcome in one another's lives the idols that so desperately grip our hearts. Help us and give us the skill of diagnosing where we're giving our lives to other gods. Give us the courage to speak the truth boldly into those situations and give us the humility to do it in gentleness and love. There is no other king, no other king, no other God could ever love us the way you have. No other one is worthy of our heart's affection the way you are. You are truly, you are a wonderful king. And so forgive us that we turn away from you and give our give our li- give our hearts and our lives to harsh rulers that only want to oppress and enslave us. Call us back to yourself this morning. Give us hearts of repentance and faith, and give us great wisdom to know how to live in keeping with your commands, that it might go well with us as you promise. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, Amen. Um, Just to give you some time to reflect on all of that, Lauren and I are going to sing a song. Um, If you know the words and you want to sing with us, you can. If not, it's okay. We're going to sing it over you. And then at the end of that, we'll stand and sing a concluding song together. So as we sing this song, Wonderful King, it's just an opportunity for you to meditate and reflect. Be quiet and be still. uh, Think through your heart um, and really engage the Lord uh, in what he's called us to this morning. So beautiful, wonderful King.